So glad to be with you guys this morning. We are in week three of this new series, and then what happened? And it's this title which springs from this universally asked kids question, right? Just as every parent begins to kind of wrap up the book for the night, they see their kids starting to kind of drift off, and, and, and they, they start to try to figure a way out of the bed. All of a sudden, the, the kid perks up and goes, and then what happened? Kids' bedtimes, if you've had them, I've had four, are never easy. I saw some parents ranting about uh, kids and trying to get them to go to sleep this week, a couple of posts that jumped out at me. The first was, I used to think I was a patient person, but then my kid got out of bed for the 11th time and asked why ducks don't have arms. <laughs> One mom posted a meme that said, it said, um, child, can daddy read to me and put me to bed tonight? And then it said, mom, you had me at can daddy, which I thought <laughs> was pretty funny. And then uh, finally, it turns out, uh, um, the meme said, finally it turns out, I do have a favorite child. It's the one that's sleeping. It's always the one that's sleeping. <laughs> what is amazing about kids is at a very young age, they realize that they want to know the full story, that, that part of it isn't enough. They would like some understanding, some resolution to what they've heard. And that's my premise in the series, that, that many of us, when it comes to understanding Jesus, we've never asked the question, and then what happened? In many ways, most of us, like kind of our faith story is the Christmas story of Jesus, right? We see the beginning, and then we believe in Easter and Jesus' resurrection, um, and, and so that's kind of the end of the story. And... and Guys, when we only understand what I would argue is a very limited part of our faith, that makes Jesus' church ripe for a few things. The first is it makes his followers ripe for walking away from the faith because our understanding of it is so shallow. Its depth is so limited. In the face of even the slightest bit of opposition, we're likely to fold. And it also, it also makes us ripe for those who would use our limited understanding of, of Jesus as a means to their own ends. Politicians do this to the church. Commercial interests do this to the church. And so for the sake of our kids, of, of mine and yours, and, and for the sake of, of the purity and the, and the clarity of the gospel, which gets distorted because of our misunderstandings, We've been asking this childlike question over the last couple weeks. And then what happened? Now, if you were here, week one, we went back to go forwards. Together we did what Jesus did post-resurrection as he met up with a couple of disciples, some dejected and upset disciples. The morning of his resurrection, they had heard that Jesus wasn't in the grave, but they didn't really believe. And if you remember the story, they were walking to a city called Emmaus, and Jesus kind of sidles up beside them and asks them why they're so down, and they explain. And Jesus says to him, why, why don't you believe? And in order to help them believe, if you remember, it says that Jesus backed all the way up. And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them who Jesus was. So that they understood that the story of Jesus didn't begin on Christmas morning. That it began with what we sang about this morning, a promise to a man named Abraham years before. And then a conditional covenant that was given to a man named Moses. Now, if you were here last week, last week we looked at what Jesus did during the month and a half that he was on earth after his resurrection. Jesus didn't come out of the grave and go, ta-da, 
you know, and then walk off into the woods somewhere. He was seen and heard, and he lived amongst, and he ate, and he slept before hundreds and hundreds of people, teaching them, instructing them for a long time. We've been discovering that there was a man named Luke. You're familiar with his gospel, the gospels of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, right? But we've also discovered that Luke wrote a sequel, a second book. Here's how he began it. He said, in my former book, Theophilus, his first book was the one most of us know. That was the first part of the story. And then you should ask, then what happened, Luke? Well, he says, in my first book, uh, Theophilus, this man to which he's writing this story, I wrote all about Jesus and began to do what he began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Now, here comes the rest of the story. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Why did Jesus have, this is Jesus, right? Like, why would Jesus have to give many convincing proofs? Well, this is just the honesty of the Gospels, right? What would it take for you to believe that someone that you were very close to and loved, that you saw violently killed, legs broken, side pierced with a spear, clearly dead, buried in a tomb for three days, likely decaying, what would it take for you to believe that after being sealed in that grave, that all of a sudden he was alive? Like seriously, what, what would that take? I don't think it would take a little proof. It would take many convincing proofs. And so Luke says that he appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and he spoke about the kingdom of God. There's that month and a half we talked about. And what's Jesus do? He spends a month and a half with the disciples and many others. There was hundreds of people that were around. He spends all of this time talking about the kingdom of God. The one that he said began with his birth and that through him the kingdom of God is no longer now something that's out there or over there or something that you experience when you die. Jesus is saying, no, this, the, the kingdom of God begins today. Not in its complete fullness, that'll come, but you can experience and live in it now. It can be a reality for you partially now. If you were here last week, you saw that the disciples, even after walking with Jesus in ministry for three years, right, and then being taught by him for 40 days, well, like you and I, the old habits, the old way of thinking, our old beliefs die hard. We have to remember the story. The story was that these were a bunch of Jewish guys living under the Abrahamic covenant. They had been taught this from the time they were born. This Abrahamic covenant, this unconditional, eternal promise of God to Abraham that God would make his descendants great and into a great nation. And these were men that were living also under the Mosaic covenant, which was this conditional promise to a nation. Literally, it was a if-then promise that they lived under, that if the nation of Israel would obey the laws of God, then God would bless the nation. And if the, if the nation of Israel would not obey the laws of God, hundreds and hundreds of laws, then God would discipline the nation. It was a temporary covenant. It wasn't to be an eternal one. It was one that Jesus had come to replace. They didn't get that yet in the story. Truthfully, 
truthfully, you and I struggle with this one too. We often don't get that that covenant ended. And so, because they didn't really understand it, right, they ask a question that you and I might still ask. They go up to him after he's teaching about the kingdom of God for a month and a half. They go, um, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? It's like, okay, we got a kingdom of God, kingdom of God, kingdom of God. That's all great. Kingdom, that's great. That's great. Now, listen, Jesus, before you go, real quick question. Is now the time when you're going to restore the kingdom to us? I mean, Jesus, aren't, uh, this is really, I mean, don't you remember those covenants? This is about this kingdom. Is now the time for us and our people? Is now the time where you reestablish us as the preeminent nation, where our culture wins out, our laws are the ones that everybody obeys, our traditions are the ones that everybody celebrates, our nation is the preeminent nation? Is now the time? Now, you're going to see in the coming weeks that the disciples, it took the disciples a good 15 to 20 years. So this is not going to be easy for us to untangle either. It took them, I mean, it took Peter, you're going to see, 15 to 20 years to untangle Jesus' message about the kingdom of God and that he was doing something very, very, very controversial and unanticipated because what Jesus was not doing, nothing he was doing was about a nation or a people group or a culture or even the old covenant anymore. He had a new one. He had a new promise, a new kingdom, and a new people. Well, last week we looked at this. Jesus, the scriptures say, ascends into heaven. We talked about why, both practically, spiritually, and theologically, that was important last week. And so now we pick up the story. Luke, again, this first-rate historian, he gets right to the facts. You've got this core group of 12 disciples, and one of them, most of you know the story, one of them was going to need to be replaced because Judas was one of them. And so Judas needed replacing in the original dozen. And so Luke begins, again, and, and because he's so historically accurate, he begins with great details about how the disciples chose his successor. He writes that Peter, and Peter you'll see now immediately in the second act of, uh, of Luke, the second story, you begin to see Peter beginning to do what Jesus said, beginning to become the leader of the church. Peter stands up and he goes, Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time, the Lord Jesus who was living among us, beginning from John's baptism of Jesus to the time when Jesus was taken up for us. For one of these must become witnesses with us of his... Now, here's an interesting detail. Again, Luke writes, Luke writes everything with a point. Interesting thing, and you're going to see this played out over and over and over again in the next chapters in the book. Peter knew that there was one thing of preeminent importance. Paul would later call it a first importance. When it comes to picking the next disciple, he had to be a witness of something. Do you know what it was? It, it, this was going to be their message to the world, right? And it wasn't going to be that he had to be a witness because this wasn't what their testimony was going to be about his teaching, his parables, his stories, or his miracles. Those were all truthful things. But that wasn't the overarching distinction that this new disciple was going to need. In fact, the scriptures are pretty clear. If he didn't have this distinction it disqualified him from becoming one of the 12. Do you know what it was? He didn't have to be a great speaker. 
He didn't have to be a wonderful teacher. He didn't have to be handsome. He had to have been a witness of the resurrection. He had to be a witness of the resurrection. Hundreds of people around, many of whom had walked with Jesus, but if you're going to be part of the 12, we're going to need you because this is our story. This is the story we're going to tell. It's of first importance. You've got to have to be a witness of the resurrection. And you are in the next couple of weeks going to hear this over and over again. Your faith, this story, hangs, literally hangs on the, the ver veracity of the resurrection. No resurrection, no Christianity. And so he needed to be a witness to it because in many ways it's the core of what Jesus is going to have them all be witnesses to and of. I saw a great tweet that reminded me of this concept this week. It's not mine. But it said, Christianity is true, or excuse me, Christianity is not true because it's relevant. Christianity is relevant because it's true. See that? And that's why the guy they chose, a guy named Matthias, had to be an eyewitness. Because he had to be able to validate the resurrection. And so, now you may ask, and then what happened? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because now things get really interesting. When the day of Pentecost came, Luke said, they were all together in one place. See, he told us in the first chapter, about 120 of them. Now, if you've been around the church, the story that's coming is going to be familiar to you. But I, I want to tell you something super interesting. Notice what Luke writes. He says, when the day of Pentecost came. You see, we do this all the time, right? Like as Christians, we're like, oh, Pentecost, that's ours. Right? We got Christmas, Easter, Pentecost, that's another. Pentecost existed already. Pentecost, when the day of Pentecost came, it already existed before the events of Acts 2. I don't know if you knew that. But this is why this story is so good. I, this is why we, we need to know our story. It's so powerful. Uh, if you're a people of faith, this is part of your story. Pentecost didn't begin with Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 took place on Pentecost, which is really interesting. It happened for a reason. Now, if you go back and you read, like Jesus took the disciples back to the law and the prophets, you would actually discover that Pentecost was one of the Jewish feast days. Only they didn't call it Pentecost. That's the Greek name. The Jews called it the Feast of the Harvest or the Feast of the Weeks. It was the culmination of the, fe of the feasts of the first fruits. Here's what would happen at harvest time. Right? People would gather together, and they would give thanks to God. It's a little bit like our Thanksgiving. They would give thanks to God and celebrate the first fruits of the harvest. It was a way of thanking God that the harvest was coming in. And this celebration, here's what's important, this celebration usually took place about 50 days after the celebration of Passover. And, stick with me now, and because it was about 50 days after the Passover that this took place, for the Jews, this feast of Pentecost took on a second meaning. They began to understand that it was about 50 days after the Passover, after Moses had led the Israelites out of their captivity in Egypt, it was about 50 days later that God came to Moses on Mount Sinai and gave him all of those 600-plus laws of the Mosaic Covenant. 
So on Pentecost, which exists long before Acts chapter 2 does, on Pentecost, everybody's heading to Jerusalem to celebrate. What are they celebrating? The first fruits of the harvest and God giving the old covenant, the one full of the laws, the one that Jesus was about to replace. You see what's happening here? Why does God choose Pentecost for what's about to happen? And this is so cool. He does it for three reasons, I think. One, practical, and, and two, so wonderfully, interestingly theological. The first is that on Pentecost, the city of Jerusalem is going to be absolutely mobbed again, right? For the celebration with all of the same pilgrims that had been there 50 days earlier for the celebration of Passover, when Jesus had been killed. All of the people come back into town. That's the practical reason. But even more spiritually cool is this. He chose Pentecost because the people of God were about to taste again the first fruits of a new kingdom, a fuller kingdom. Just like the the full harvest hadn't come in yet, right? But at Pentecost, the people were about to get a taste, a first taste, and it was going to be a taste that was good enough that it would make them long for more. A first taste of the kingdom of God that is possible in and among his people. And it was on that day, the day the Mosaic Covenant was started, the day the Mosaic Covenant was celebrated, God comes down again in the image of fire, and he meets with his people again, and this time he brings to them a new covenant and a new promise. I mean, the the symbolism, do you see the beauty and the relevance of the symbolism You literally can't make it up. This is your story. This is how amazing it is. And and most of us don't even know. And, And so Luke says it was during this celebration of Pentecost in the city, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where where the disciples were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be, they weren't, but it seemed to be, this is their best description, tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them, everybody that was there, about 120 folks. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. And I know if you've been around the church, there's a lot of confusion about tongues. But right now, what Luke is talking about here, what he's writing about these other tongues, that word there just literally means in different languages as the Spirit enabled them to. Imagine that, right? That would be like me up here. Suddenly, all of us just start speaking different languages. Not, not unknown languages, right? I don't know if you've been to Guatemala with me. You've heard my Spanish. It's really, really good, right, Betsy? <laughs> I know like five words, but I say them well. So then when I say them, then they talk back to me, and I just look at them and go, I have no idea what you're saying, right? But this would be like suddenly all of us are speaking, you know, Russian and Spanish and German and French, like all of a sudden, everybody's speaking a different language. And, and they were smart enough to realize as they were talking, he's speaking Russian. How the heck does he know Russian all of a sudden, right? So Luke goes on, he goes, now there, there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Why were there in Jerusalem right now, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven? Anybody? Because it's Pentecost. They're all there for the Feast of Weeks. And when they heard this sound, this is the brilliance of your God. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one, because they all speak different languages because they're from all over the known world, because each one of them heard their own language being spoken. 
utterly amazed, which of course they were, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Now, I'm going to try to nail these, right? You got the, the Parthians, the Medes, the Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontius, and Asia, Phryga, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene. There were visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the, the wonders of God, but we hear them in our own tongues. Now again, I'm just going to be open with you, right? That's hard to believe, right? That's hard to believe. I think that's why Luke investigated it. I think that's why he wrote back to Theophilus and goes, I've looked into these things. Apparently, this happened. He had heard all about it. And so like any historian, right, he, he starts looking into it. And I just love the next line. We're going to spend the next few minutes on it. Luke writes, and of course this is what happened. As this is happening, amazed and perplexed, of course they are, they asked one another, what does this mean? Which is a pretty good question. It's almost as good as, and then what happened? And those of you who have known this story, have you ever asked that question? I know a lot of people have heard of this story. Have you ever stopped and gone, hmm, wonder what that means? Because that's what was going on there. They're looking at each other going, what the heck is going on? Why, why is this happening? It's a crazy story. See, here's the deal. I, I ask that question a lot when I study the scriptures. Now, I know there's a strong history in Christianity that says the Bible said it, I believe it, and that settles it. That doesn't, that's never worked for me well. I, 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 I know it doesn't work for your kids that are going off to college and when they get blasted for their faith, and here's, here's the amazing part, I mean, they walk away because they don't really understand it, right? Here's the amazing thing. That line of logic actually doesn't work for anybody in the Bible. Like Luke's going, they're all sitting around going, yeah, I don't get it. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, all Luke has done so far in both his books is report on, report on them wrestling with doubt and disbelief and asking questions. And so this is the question. What does this mean? Well, I want to give you what I, I, after studying it over the last week, what I, I think it means. First, Luke says that suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Now, notice that he says the sound was like the blowing of a violent wind. He doesn't say it was a violent wind, right? I've been in a violent wind before um, a couple of times. And I don't know if you've ever, you've ever been, like, it, gone outside when a hurricane's coming through or anything like that. There, there is nothing like that. Like the power of the wind, the force is incredible. But I don't know for you, but the, the thing that's the most scariest thing about a really strong wind to me is the sound. Have you ever been by the wind where it sounds like there's a train going by? You know, where you're like, it's just this unbelievable sound of the power of the wind. And that's what he's talking about. He's talking about this sound. There was suddenly a sound like the blowing of this kind of wind came by. Luke said it was like that, but that's not what it was. It wasn't in some sense natural. He said, and here's how I know that, he said, it didn't just happen, it came down from heaven. What's that mean? Well, I think what it means is that for those of us that are followers of Jesus, 
What we're involved in is likely to be the most countercultural thing on the face of the earth, especially right now. What it seems to indicate is that to be filled with the Spirit of God is, now, I, you know, this, this might send some of you for a loop, but is to be filled by something not from within, not available deep within us somewhere, not some kind of emotion that we drag up into the surface, not that we can find anywhere here on earth that can fill us. It means that to be filled with the Spirit, right, it, it comes from the outside into us. It comes from the heavens. Now, I heard somebody in discussing this this week said, and they made a great observation. They said, our culture says that all of our problems come from the outside, right? And where is the solution to all of our problems? Inside. How many times have you been told you have everything inside of you right now to fix this or overcome that? You have all the power you need. It's on the inside. See, that's not our story. We get duped by that, but that's not our story. Our story is different. Our story says the main problem, your main problem, is actually what's happening inside. You're the main problem. And coming down from heaven is a power that you need, right, to give you everything that you'll need in this life. I mean, isn't, isn't this what the world says? I, I, I Googled it. I just, I, I just I typed into the Google bar. Do this when you get home. Um, I just typed in, you have the power within you, right? I'm sure you've told that. You've probably told it to your kids, right? This is something we fall into. You have the power within you. I Googled it. Do you know how many results came back? 14,520,000,000 results. Book after book by the name, by that title, you have the power within you. And I mean, this is just so prevalent. It's everywhere. You have all you need inside of you. You just got to find it. Dig it out. Look, look at this first picture. I thought this one was funny. You have the picture of the woman? The power is within you. Isn't that so incredibly cheesy? <laughs> right? And then check this one out here. Right? Trust the power within you. You should trust the power within you. This is the old follow your heart. The answer is within. Just listen to your heart. I have to tell you, I spend the better part of many days helping people unwind the mess they have made of their lives by following their hearts, by trusting the, just trust the power within. Listen to me. Don't do that. Don't do that. You don't trust yourself. You've got a much better answer than that. That's the hope of the world. You are not the hope of the world. Right? I'm going to save you a trip to see me later. <laughs> Don't trust the power within. That's not your story. You have a better story. Don't fall for that. But it's not just the culture. Many religions, many people who tell you they're spiritual will say the same thing. Here's one that, this one was up everywhere. Um, apparently it's a very famous quote. Can you throw the, is the Swami up? All power is within you. You can do anything and everything. How many, kids, how many of us have told our kids that? You can do anything. Believe in that. Believe in that? That's why we have a lot of kids on medication. Believe in that. Don't believe in that. Stand up and express the divinity within you. As if we ourselves are gods. You see how prevalent this is in the culture? How prevalent it is in the mindset? 
Because our story is just the opposite. It's that we're broken. Our nature is broken. In our nature, we are normally self-centered people. We see ourselves. I'm watching my granddaughter, who's only four weeks old. And I was looking at her as I was holding her the other day, and there was a line to hold her. And I said, how does this kid have any hope of not thinking she is the center of the entire universe, right? They're waiting to hold her. The disciples question, right? Is now our time? Is now when you're going to restore the kingdom to us and our nation and our people and our culture and our values and our... See, the world says the problem's out there. Christianity says, ah, they're not the problem. You're the problem. I'm the problem. But the answer's out there. Super interesting article. I became aware of it this week as I was listening to what other folks had to say about this. It was in the New York Times. This is so good. The title of the article was, Which Brand is Your Therapist? Lori Gottlieb is this psychotherapist who wrote the article. Here's what she said, quote, listen to this, guys. What nobody taught me in grad school was that psychotherapy, a practice that sustained itself for more than a century, is losing its customers. Now, it came as a shock to me. The American Psychological Association has tried to send out warnings in a 2010 paper titled, Where Has All the Psychotherapy Gone? According to the author... 30% fewer patients received psychological interventions in 2008 than they did 11 years earlier. And here's the great quote in the article explaining it. She saw a shift from people who were unhappy and wanted to understand themselves better to people who would come in, quote, because they wanted someone else or something else to change. She said, quote, I'd see fewer and fewer people coming in and saying, I want to change. At a professional networking event or in newsletters, her pitch had to go, because this is the only way that she could exist, her pitch had to go from, I treat people with depression and anxiety, to, quote, are you having trouble with the difficult people in your life? You see that? Because I have all the answers. It's amazing, right? In many ways, parents, and I'm guilty of this, man, I'm I'm more guilty than anybody. We have been raising generations of kids, telling them over and over and again, oh, you're perfect. You can do anything you want. Just follow your heart, chase your dreams, make it happen. And so when they grow up, right, when, they, when, when we grow up, it, it, it's not us that has the problem. It's them that are the problem. Now, do you see how marketers and politicians start to take advantage of you? It's, it's not me, it's them. It's not us, it's they. Personal reflection and transformation and change. Why would I do that? I've got all the answers inside me, baby. See, if we just keep telling our kids that the answer's within them, that they're equipped and they have the power within them to do whatever they want to do and whatever they want to be, no wonder there is a whole generation full of anxiety and depression like no other because the world quickly teaches them they don't have all of the answers inside. And then what happens to our kids? They begin to go, something's wrong with me. I'm different. I guess everybody else has the answers, but I don't. See, that's not the story of the followers of Jesus. Our story is much better than that. We've got a better hope. I'm not the hope of the world. I'm not even the hope for myself. 
Because I can't control. If it's all about trying to control the world or control people, if that's my hope, no wonder I'm depressed. But what if we started understanding our story, right? What if we started understanding that there's literally a power available to me to change me so I change the world? Isn't that a better story? And then what happened? Well, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. What does that mean? I'll tell you what it means. Two things. One personal, personal, one universal. Personal. Now, I want you to enter the story. There was in that room... Peter, who had walked on water and whom Jesus said he was going to build his church on, and Jesus said, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. That's who was in that room. In that room were Matthew and John, who had been with Jesus every day of his life. John was so close to Jesus that he referred to himself often as the disciple whom Jesus loved. John, this is a little weird, Okay, but John was proud of it. John used to, when they ate dinner, John would recline his head on Jesus' chest. That's how close they were. These are the biggest of bigwigs in the history of the church. Nobody knew more than them. Nobody experienced more than them. Nobody knew Jesus better. Now, with that in mind, that's who's in the room. Can I ask you, did you notice who the Spirit fell on? Whom did the power come to rest on? Anybody catch it? All of them. All of them. I like how Luke uses the words. Back to back, he uses these words. He says, each of them, all of them. Each of them, all of them. He said there were 120 people there, and the Spirit of God, the power of God, fell on all of them. Now, I need you to hear this. You know who it fell on? It fell on men, and it fell on women. It fell on educated people and uneducated people. It fell on eyewitnesses to the resurrection and people that were just newfound believers. The Spirit of God fell on all of them. You see, when God made that covenant with Abraham, right, if you know the story, he appears as a blazing torch. He appears like fire. When he made the covenant with Moses, does anybody remember how God showed up when he went to talk to Moses? He appeared in what? A burning bush. He appears as fire. And so here we are at the celebration of that first covenant, and now the fire comes again, but this time the fire rests on each of them. Don't you see that this is God? He's appearing again, and he's inaugurating a new covenant. And then in this new covenant, everybody is equal. Everybody is a priest. Everybody has equal worth and value in this new kingdom. Everybody that, you'll see how you get this, but everybody that that was there, that believed, everybody has the presence of God now available to them. He is no longer in the temple where only the priest would go once a year, right? Now he resides and each and every believer, every single believer has within him the presence of God. Every single believer. And what does the Spirit of God do once it comes into a believer? Well, it does a couple of things. It convicts us of our sin, but it doesn't shame us for it. It shows us, it points us towards Christ who paid the debt for that sin that we owed, reminds us that Jesus, this, now, this Jesus is now ruling the universe on our behalf. And according to the Scriptures, and on several occasions, 
The, the Spirit says, Paul put it this way, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. That's the work of the Spirit of God in your life. If you're not experiencing it, I remember one day I was telling this to, um, to, to one of our small groups on Thursday night. Uh, we have this incredible group that's, that, that, that has the guts to show up and deal with some of, the, some of the, the, the horrible things that have happened in their life, and they're working it through. And we were talking about this, and I, a couple of years ago, I was sitting at the, at the pool, and um, it's a bad image in your mind. You want to get out. But as, as I was sitting there, I was um, just kind of talking to God, and all of a sudden, I had this overwhelming, I've never had this before, this overwhelming sense from God that what he said to me in my ears, I didn't hear it audibly, but I felt it, was... John, I am so proud of you. And I will say that cockily, because I haven't done anything that... He's proud of me through Christ. But I have to tell you, the voice in my head most of the time doesn't say that. Most of the time it tells me I'm a phony. Most of the time it tells me I'm a failure. But when you get the Spirit of God in your life, you're a son and a daughter of the Most High God. If you, if, you, if you don't have that voice in your head, if you haven't experienced these things, how do you get it? I'll tell you in a minute. Luke, this first-rate historian, did you notice that he, he is so precise in his recordings of the languages that the Spirit w- w- gave the people to speak? Look at this chart. Look at all of these. Do you have the chart? Look at all of the languages that suddenly these, these, these people that are in the room can speak, right? And Why? Here's the universal piece of the story. Because the story of Jesus is not one nation's story. No nation, even Israel, has claim or first dibs on Jesus. No one had priority when the Spirit of God first came. The first gospel was preached not to one nation, but to every nation. Look at this map. This is where those languages were from. This is where the pilgrims were all from and where they were going back to. They were all hearing the gospel together at once, and they were going to take it back to their nations. God made sure that no one language and no one culture had primacy over another in this new covenant. Things are now different. I, I, don't, want to, I don't want to offend you, but I, I, breaking news, God does not have a favorite country. God has sons and daughters in nations and in every country on the earth. That's the truth. It's actually better than that. I mean, our story is so good, and it's so much better than we know. What God was doing that day, this is so cool to think about, okay? And I'll be done. God is reversing a curse that is prevalent in our world today. It shouldn't be in the church, it is, but it's still prevalent in the world today. Remember when Jesus took those disciples that were all bummed out? He took them back to Moses and the prophets, right? Well, there's a story that he might have shared with them, and it's a curious story in the book of Genesis. You know it as the Tower of Babel. In Genesis 11, that's where the Tower of Babel is, but in Genesis 10, there's an introduction to the story. And do you know how the story is introduced? Once again, with a table of nations. God lists every nation. Go to, you go home, check out Genesis 10. You'll see God lists all of the nations in Genesis 10. And then in Genesis 11, right? It's just like Acts 2. You have this listing of nations. Genesis 11, first verse. Now the whole world had one language and one common speech. Many nations, one language. Many nations, they all understood one another. You understand that? 
Many nations, many cultures, many tribes all understood one another. Now, if you know the story, what, what they decided to do was to build this tower up to the heavens. And why? Because the scriptures say that they wanted to, quote, this is the exact quote, make a name for themselves. Fueled by pride and arrogance and self-ambition and with a desire to be like God for, themse for themselves, they set out to prove their self-sufficiency and supremacy. And God judged them. That was the promise, right? And how does, he how, does, how does he judge them? He confused their languages. Suddenly, instead of one language, there were many. And the result? They no longer could understand each other. They no longer could talk to each other. The result? Over many, over time, many races, many languages, which no longer understand one another. And you know what flows from that. And people appeal to this. You mix that with human pride, and what do you get? Racial and cultural superiority, imperialism, racial and cultural hostility, and destruction of human community. See, do you see what's happening here at Pentecost? The curse that all of humanity was under that was dividing us is being now reversed. All of the nationalism and racial tensions, the disciples are going, is now the kingdom for Israel? And, and Jesus is looking and going, no, 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 you don't get it. All of the nationalism and racial tensions, all of the cultural clashes, they're all coming undone. Suddenly in Acts 2, they had many languages, but they could all understand one another again. Do you see that? That's your story. That's what you're part of. Don't let people make you part of a different story that's not yours our story, right, it is not one of racial or cultural or national superiority. In fact, you're going to see this next week. This is really cool. You want to understand one of the reasons God creates a church? The purpose of the church, or at least one of them, is to be this community of Christ, this living, breathing gathering of faith and hope and love, where in that community, all of the curses that existed because of sin now suddenly begin to unwind. Because within that community, you no longer need to bear those curses any longer. They were all born for, by Jesus on your behalf. And so they all start to come undone. Do you see what the power, that what the church could be? If we knew our story? We are the answer that everybody's looking for. See, to answer the question on the street that day, what does this all mean? That's what this all means. It's so unbelievable. It's so incredible what God was doing, what they were experiencing and realizing. You, you know, when those people saw enough um, of all of these people, what they experienced, there was so much joy everywhere. I, I like how Luke writes it. He goes, some made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. That was the state of their euphoria, right? I'll wrap up for you with Peter's answer. The band can start to come up. This is the first Christian sermon ever preached. He says, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully what I say. These people aren't drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. I just love that. That's his reason. We're not drunk. Well, why? It's only nine in the morning. Nobody had told Peter it's five o'clock somewhere, apparently. I don't know if he's trying to get them to laugh, right, or whatever, or break the ice, but he goes, listen, fellow Israelites, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, signs, which God did among you through him, as you know. Why? Because they were there 50 days ago. He was handed over to you by, uh, um, he was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead. 
freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for the death to keep its hold on him. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we're all witnesses of it. And then he gave his conclusion. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the hearts and said to Peter and the other apostles, what should we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for forgiveness of sins. Repent. Change the way you think. Change the way you think. And be baptized. We're going to talk about this over the next time of week, but if you haven't been baptized, there's your reason. Publicly identify yourself as part of this new community of this role-reversing community. Publicly identify yourself with the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And here's the best part. And you will receive the Holy Spirit. It will fall on you too. Let's stand and close together.